Like I said, there we are. We are going to be in Luke 24, eventually. That's what Zoe read for us. But the passage is going to begin that we're going to look at back into Luke chapter 23. And the reason for that is because I want to highlight something that I think we can overlook quite a bit when we think about the resurrection. A number of years ago, we, through our community groups, went through the doctrine that our church holds. And rather than trying to somehow pitch every area of what we believe about God, how he's communicated, who we are, who Jesus is, what it means to come back to God, rather than trying to pitch that as something normal that ought to seem like something that's easily accepted in our culture, I actually tried to take the exact opposite perspective. Every doctrinal position that our church holds to, I tried to show how absolutely ludicrous it was, culturally speaking. Let me give you an example. We as Christians believe that there is a book that is thousands of years old that contains revelation that's all you need in order to be right in this world. That's a really crazy idea. We live in an age when everything is apparently always getting better and that what is created recently is better than what was created in the past. And in one sense, we're saying something entirely different. We also live in an age that's becoming more and more skeptical of what's unseen. And yet we, when we were studying theology proper, talked about a God who's invisible, That everything that exists came from his hand and was created by his will and according to his design. Page after page, chapter after chapter of our time through this doctrine series, we tried to show that to be a Christian isn't necessarily to adopt things that are common and popular, but to always be, in some senses, a rebel against what is currently accepted belief. What's wrong with the world today? Most people are going to answer, it's how people treat each other. It's how we treat the earth, something like that. And we didn't answer the question that way. We said that what's wrong with the world is how we treat God and how we relate to him. What's the solution for what's wrong with the world? How do we understand who Jesus is? Where are we going? What is happening in world history? Everything Christians believe is crazy. And I want you to know that you've come today to celebrate the craziest of them all. The passage I read to you in the beginning doesn't ask, do you believe in God? It doesn't say that God's righteousness comes to the ones who believe in God. It says that we get to be right because we believe there's a God who brought somebody back from death. And that's why I wanted to go back into Luke 23 a little bit. Because Luke 23 is going to start us off with a concept that seems crazy. And in fact, if you're looking in your bulletin, you see that's our first point. The first point is this. Jesus' resurrection as a hypothesis, it seems ludicrous. It seems absolutely ridiculous. Listen to the evidence that I get for that, starting in verse 49 from chapter 23. It says, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood as a distance watching these things. Not a very great spot to start a story, I realize, right? 
The good news is Brad laid out what all these things were. The people who would come, all of his acquaintances, the women who followed him, were referring to Jesus, of course. And that these things that had taken place to Jesus were everything Brad just laid out. Everything from the triumphal entry all the way up to the crucifixion. And as the moment happened that Jesus expired, died, perished, the one was once the container for who Jesus is stopped in some way being the container for who Jesus is. When the spear had pierced him and it was obvious that that didn't kill him, it just verified that he had already died. There were a few people left watching, not many, a few. There were mainly women. John was there, we know, from another account. But there are some friends, there are some women, and they're watching. The man they followed for three years, the one they were excited about, is gone by every common definition of what happens to people in this world. Death and taxes, the two inevitable things. Jesus took care of taxes in some other places, but here, death. Everybody's watching. And then we focus in on one individual. It says there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And the there he's referring to is all the religious leaders who goaded Rome into crucifying Jesus. They're the ones who had kept Jesus up all night from Thursday into Friday morning. They were the ones who trumped up all the charges. They were the ones trying to figure out how can we get this guy out because he's messing up our system. And Joseph is the one that, that Luke highlights and says he really didn't agree. He was part of the council. He was a good guy. And he didn't agree with what was going on. But instead, he, like the women who were watching these things, he, the end of verse 51, was looking for the kingdom of God. We have these two groups watching Jesus die, and they're both looking, they're both watching, they're both waiting. But they've come to one conclusion. This guy's gone. They were observers of the end of the story. Joseph was not expecting Jesus was coming back. Let's just be clear on that. Look at the evidence that we have starting in verse 52. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. Verse 52 He's got a body, that body goes in a shroud, that shroud goes in a tomb, and this tomb is so special, it was reserved probably for someone in Joseph's family, someone of great importance and great honor, which is why it wasn't a common tomb, and it wasn't a recycled tomb, it was a brand new tomb. Tomb, so that the law might be fulfilled, so that everything could be perfect, and so that Jesus could be honored as he ought to because he was dead. Guys, that's the story at the end of Luke 23. 
And if you met with any one of these women, any one of these acquaintances, or if you talk to Joseph at this exact moment and says, what are you doing, man? This is, he's like taking a three-day nap is kind of all that's about to happen. They would look at you and think, what, what's wrong with you? You're, you're crazy. Jesus is dead. In fact, if there was anything that anybody might have been thinking at a moment like this, it wasn't how was Jesus going to sort of come back and redeem the situation. He was the one who was supposed to redeem things. But now that he's gone, what do you do? I can imagine something like a Psalm 94 would be going through their heads. heads. Listen to this. Oh, Lord, God of vengeance. Oh, God of vengeance, shine forth. How long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? They crush your people, oh, Lord. They afflict your heritage. But the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute, they band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. They could be quoting that psalm in their heads while they're wrapping Jesus' body. They could be quoting that psalm in their heads as they're walking away from what they've just witnessed, thinking, oh, we had such a shot. Why do wicked people always win? It bothers us, doesn't it? It's part of what is, we're watching from a distance, clearly, but it's part of what we're seeing in Ukraine. And there's just a common sentiment among us, right? It's, this isn't right. Why should one people have the ability to do this to another people? We we just know these things aren't right. What are you going to do? Nothing. You're going to sit there and watch because there's nothing you can do. That's the way the author of this Psalm 94 feels. God, wicked people are doing whatever they want. And frankly, every time the Bible talks about this, it talks about it with a sense of like kind of horizontal despair. There's nothing we can do. Before this, Jesus, his disciples had wanted to sort of take out their tiny little swords, right? And one guy got an earlobe cut off. It's the best we can do in putting up any resistance. Where's justice and righteousness really going to come from? It's going to come from God. But right now, resurrection seems ridiculous. As a hypothesis, the idea of beating death feels ludicrous. And frankly, it gets worse, doesn't it? Because when you turn the pages and you see just a little bit how it continues into verse 55, there's still death everywhere. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments and the Sabbath was coming. So they needed to stop. They needed to rest. And so on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment to bring the spices later because this wasn't just like a peaceful body where like in a cartoon, if you die, you get little X's over your eyes and there you go. Or in a video game, you die and you just sort of disappear off the ground. He was going to rot. His body was going to decompose. Rigor mortis was going to set in. You had to counteract that. Death is just lingering over this entire end of the chapter. And frankly, sadly, the church in the United States has not known what to do with this, especially of late. 
We either follow kind of a common, modern, sort of naturalistic way of thinking about this, and we deny a resurrection because that's just the thing, right? People don't come back to life. So if people came back to life, well, then Jesus could come back to life, but Jesus couldn't have come back to life because people just don't come back to life. Except for Jesus who came back to life. But sadly, Christians have done this as well. Listen to a guy named Richard Rohrer. He says, resurrection is just another word for change, but particularly positive change, which we tend to see only in the long run. In the short run, change often looks like death. Now, Rohr would say he believes in a literal resurrection, but frankly, most of the time he talks about it, he talks about it as an analogy. He talks about it as a metaphor. So what happens to Jesus is the kind of thing that happens to us. We all have to die to things a little bit. We all get to raise to life to things. We see it in the fall, the winter, and the spring, right? I mean, so we take this, this amazing concept, this ridiculous concept, and we dumb it down to the point that the rest of the world can kind of buy into it. And guys, we got our message when we do this. Embrace the ridicule of the idea of the resurrection, church. If the story ends here, death wins because death won every time before this. That's the way it goes. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do they put women's clothes and men's clothes in the same exact spot of a store? Because when you're 10 and you're shopping with your mom and she says, hey, go look for some pants for a little while. And you're like, okay, I'll go look for pants for a while. And then you notice that everybody's kind of looking at you kind of funny for a while. And then your mom comes back and she's like, the guy's pants are over here. And you have to walk where you've been shopping apparently for women's jeans for a while and come back over and realize, oh, this is where the men's jeans are. These are the pants I was supposed to be buying. This is where I was supposed to be looking because what I want is here. It's not here. That's what the angel's saying. Dead people. You're not looking for somebody over here. You should be looking somewhere entirely different. Well, how were we supposed to know that, angel? I mean, every person who dies and gets sealed in a tomb starts to stink, and we got to do the thing, and then you seal it up, and that's the end of it. You're never, ever going to see him again. But why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Well, how should we have known that? Well, remember how he told you? While he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And then they remembered his words. We're in Luke, and if you just use the book of Luke, if you just use the book of Luke, you could go back and you could remember that he had said, well, who do you say I am? Peter said, oh, you're the son of God. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And Jesus goes, yep, let me tell you a little bit more about that. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Angels are saying, remember that? Luke 9, you remember that? You were there. You remember that? Huh. 
yeah, escaped my notice. Okay, well, remember when he said, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course? Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Okay, that one was a little more obscure, Jesus. Yeah, but he's still kind of hinting at it, right? Chapter 18, and taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished. Here it goes. You missed that other obscure reference. Here you go. He will be delivered over the Gentiles and be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Did you get it? Yeah, who's the son of man we're talking about again? They didn't pick it up. They understood, Luke says, none of these things. This saying was hidden for them, and they did not grasp what he said. So the angel reminds him, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they then remembered his words to them. Resurrection was kind of ridiculous, but it was becoming a little less so because the message from the angels came to the women. And so what do the women do? Verse nine. They returned from the tomb and told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And here's our second point. It's not just that resurrection seems ridiculous. It's that talking about it, you look like you're a liar. The story of the resurrection, resurrection as an account, seems fabricated. It seems fictitious. It seems like you're just bringing something out of nowhere, trying to bring hope where hope has never existed before, which is why the disciples said, this seems an idle tale and don't believe them. If we can't buy into this, if we've been so year after year, song after song, kind of everything after everything, we've been so sort of accustomed to talking about Jesus defeating death. If we don't sort of pause here in this moment, there's good news to get to, but do you feel Luke lingering over the difficulty of it? He's just joining us where we're at. Because frankly, the curse of sin still seems to win. Wicked people still seem to win. And grief seems to stay with us forever. It doesn't feel like this is moving anywhere. And I'm so grateful Luke didn't say, hey, so Jesus died and it was hard to believe at the beginning, but let's get to the good stuff. He instead lets us pause over this. And so the king who was here is the king who was slain. And man, that was hard. But he's the king who's alive. Jesus' resurrection as an account seems fabricated. Really, as as a concept, as a hypothesis, it just seems absolutely ridiculous. But I want to focus on one person for the rest of our time. It's where Luke goes next. Verse 12. Peter rose. 
Why Peter? He's the leader, and it's important. And this happened, and that's important. But Luke could have figured in and focused in on kind of anybody. But he focuses in on Peter. So let's just at least just join him for a minute. And remember where Peter had been. This is Peter who rose. Peter who had said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Not days before this. You could count back hours to when Peter had just said these words to Jesus. You ever see Finding Nemo? Remember the last thing that Nemo says to Marlin before getting taken by the big butt boat? In case you see the movie. He tells his dad, I hate you. You know the moving scene at the very end? It's when Nemo sees his dad again and says, Dad, I don't hate you. For how long have those words been hanging over poor little Nemo? Whatever. How long have these words been hanging over Peter? I will go with you to prison and to death. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb and stooping and looking in. He's not just thinking about his words. He's got to be thinking about Jesus' words. Because Jesus, right after that, said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. What a horrible last conversation to have in your head. But it gets worse. It gets worse for Peter. Because those are the last things that he said And so he arrives and he stoops in and looks and he sees the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what happened. And I'd love to know what exactly does he mean by marveling? I'd love to read into it for you and say, this means he was worshiping. It might. But you can marvel in a lot of different ways, can't you? We can marvel that something is true, but doesn't feel like it's true. We can marvel that something is more true than we feel it. And we wonder why the discrepancy. We can marvel and just utter worship. How could this possibly be? And I wholeheartedly believe it. I don't know where, you know, Peter is on that whole spectrum of marveling. But to him, the account of the resurrection as a reality is marvelous. And I've got to think that's part of what happened after that conversation between Jesus and Peter. Let me read it for you. Going back just a little bit, it says, Then they seized him, Jesus, and led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. When they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, one, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also were one of them. Peter said, man, I am not. Strike two. And somehow, I missed a slide. I'm not sure if you've got it. Let me just tell you, (laughs) it happened a third time. Boy, I set myself up to fail on that one. Skipped over some verses. 
But here's where it ends. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. I got to think that's the most powerful part of the conversation. You're going to deny me. Oh, I'm going with you to prison and death. No, you're going to deny me. And when the moment happens, their eyes lock. And that's the last conversation he has. And Peter flees with the rest of the cowards. And he hears the accounts, and they sound like an idle tale. And he comes back, and he has to confront this reality. Apparently, this really happened. You know what it meant for Peter? It meant that Peter could then read or sort of understand this and then write the following. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living of hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What is it that brought Peter from a place of despairing over his sin to ultimately being restored to God and sent back on commission to be able to work for God? It was this fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's why Peter later could write, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world and was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, not just God, but God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So your faith and hope are in God. Because I remember when my faith and my hope were shattered after my disappointment. And what was the thing that was going to bring me back? It was the fact that he came back and he said, all right. You take care of my little ones. You take care of my sheep. You feed my lambs. Let's go. It's Peter who could write, we are going to be partakers in the glory that's going to be revealed. And because Jesus is alive, Peter could write, the God of grace who has called you to an eternal glory in Christ will himself because he's alive, restore himself, because he's alive, confirm. He will himself strengthen and himself establish you. He's not going to send some emissary to do it. He is going to come and personally interact with you because death didn't beat him. And guys, this isn't just Peter's story. Paul says, if you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, not was. Where he is, he's seated at the right hand of God. So set your minds on things that are above, not around the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. It's why Paul, at the end of his climactic chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, could look at people who felt like all of their labors were for nothing. It's why yesterday I could have a Zoom call with pastors in Nepal who were looking to share some good news with their churches. And I could say, you are laboring in obscure and tired situations, but your labors are not in vain. And that's because of Easter, brothers and sisters. (coughs) 
something. <coughs> Man. Okay. I think we're ready, Bill. Thanks for turning me back on. <clears throat> the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. And it reigned for too long and over too many. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord who raised Jesus from the dead, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because I don't know what spot <coughs> you've been in before coming to, uh, to Resurrection Sunday today. I don't know what your week has been like. I don't know what your current uh, sort of sense of things is. <laughs> I don't know if you left out the story of the third denial of Peter. I don't know if you can't finish talking your way through a sermon that's supposed to be the climactic sermon of the entire Christian calendar. I don't know where you're at, but I know this. If you bail on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you've got nothing. you got everything the world has to offer, and it's nothing. You're going to rate your work and your effort. You're going to judge the scorecard of your life off of the strength and the resources and the, the accolades you get in this life. Because if Jesus lived and died and that's it, then you're going to live and you're going to die and that's it. You might as well do it for everything you can get now. But Jesus told you, when you pray, don't worry about whether anybody else sees. Because there's a God who sees what's unseen. And the end of your life won't be it. And when you give, don't, don't sound trumpets. Don't do it like all the hypocrites do. When you pray, don't do it like the hypocrites do. Because God sees what you give. Nobody else does. You don't have to use a lot of words. You don't have to impress people. If you deny yourself something, if you fast, you don't have to make a big deal of it so that everybody else notices. You can go through your life serving God in unnoticed ways, one simple step of obedience after another in the right direction. And God who has seen you all along will reward you at the end of your life. Why? Because Jesus was raised from the dead and therefore, death won't have the final say over your life. We can do this because of Easter. Strip away Easter, and I don't know what in the world we're doing. And there we are. The good news, though, is that the Lord is risen. Then be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for water to preach your word. 
I thank you for ears that we can hear your word. And Father, I pray it wouldn't stop there. I pray that your word preached and heard by the work of your spirit would soften and change our hearts so that we live as ridiculous fools with what feels like a fictitious method, message, but that's the only thing worth marveling at, that you defeated death and we aligned with you now have a future and a hope. Father, I pray, move and motivate and shape us this week. And now, Lord, would you move and motivate and shape our worship so that we can give you glory because you are the ultimate victor. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Let's stand and sing together.